0: Good morning, church. It's so good to see all of you here gathered this morning for worship. Uh, My name is Jesse Holmes. I serve as the discipleship pastor here at Crawford Avenue. Uh, And I ask that you will turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, Specifically this morning, we'll be studying verses 12 through 20. So if you're using one of the Black Bibles provided for you, you you'll find this on page 955. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 12 through 20 And the word of God reads All things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful All things are lawful for me but I will not be dominated by anything Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other The body is not meant for sexual immorality So glorify God in your body. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, we come to you asking for your help by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we dive into your word, we just pray and ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you will give us great understanding that we might know and commit to living a life that honors you. Father, I ask that you will help me now to speak with clarity, Uh, help me to be concise. Uh, I pray that you will be honored and glorified in all the things said and done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not figured it out, this morning we're going to be talking about sex and sexual immorality. And it's a topic that can be very uncomfortable, right? Uh, It can also dig up emotions like shame and guilt. And unfortunately, as a result, Uh, a lot of churches don't talk about such a topic. But I'm grateful to be a part of a church that understands the need to address such a topic and does not shy away. And I am partly grateful that I get to do that this morning. So here we go. Uh, I do want to let you know that my goal and my aim, and I've worked very hard to do this, is to choose words very carefully, knowing that we have young ones in the room, but I'm going to be faithful to exposit what the text has to say. Because this topic of sex and sexual immorality is brought up in almost all of Paul's letters. If you look at all of his letters that he wrote in the New Testament, sexual immorality comes up in one form or another. And the question is why? Well, it's because it is in everywhere in the cultures in which Paul is writing to, is extremely dangerous, and sexual immorality is a direct attack on what God intends for sex and marriage. Still today, sexual immorality is a part of our culture that we live in. It's promoted in our TV shows. It's in our movies. It's in our video games. It's in the books that we read. And so easily, we as believers can find ourselves rooting for that couple to get together even though what they're doing is committing sexual immorality. In chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is hitting this issue head on. He's not holding back any punches because he is fighting for the purity of the bride of Christ. In chapter 5 specifically, Paul rebukes the church because sexual immorality is happening right there in their midst in a way that is unheard of to non-believers— So what's taking place in the church, even non-believers are saying, dude, that's gross. Don't do that. But what is the Corinthians' response? Their response is silence and yet being very prideful because of the things that they think that they know. And Paul, in so many words, is saying, what is wrong with you? No, this is not what it looks like to be a follower and one that is committed to Jesus Christ. Stop it. Now, in the last section of chapter 6, Paul is getting to the root of the issue for the Corinthians. The root of the issue is that they have a bad theology of the physical body. And it's not surprising, given the philosophers of their day that were teaching that the body did not matter. It's all about the soul. And so you can do whatever you want with your body because it's the soul that matters. And so the church began to adopt this philosophy. It began to seep into the church, and as a result, they were allowing and were also engaging in sexual sin. So today, a similar philosophy is being taught, right? Your body belongs to you. You get to decide what's best for your body. You get to live in your body any way that you want. And as a result, there are so many people out in the world that are doing all kinds of things with into their bodies. Well the goal today is not to teach uh, on our responsibility to change the world's view of the body. But like Paul, our goal is to call believers to live in purity, which means that they can't do, we can't do whatever we want with our bodies. So keep in mind that as we are walking through this text, Paul is speaking directly to those whose heart of stone has been renewed, removed and a heart of flesh has been put in, those that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the question that we want to answer this morning is simply this. Why must my body be governed by God's standards? Why must my body... How I use my body, where I go with my body, what I do with my body. Why must my body be governed by God's standards? And I believe that Paul in this text gives us four reasons why. And each of these reasons will serve as the points to the sermon. So if you're taking notes, point one, reason one is this. Your body is for the Lord. Your body is for the Lord. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. At the get go, what Paul is doing, he's bringing up some slogans, two slogans that are known among the Corinthians. And at first glance, you look at these slogans and you might think, well, it kind of makes sense what they're saying. Like, I get their point of view. But what we learn at the end of verse 13 is that their comments or their slogans are not innocent. In actuality, what they're doing is their slogans are being used to justify them doing whatever they want sexually with their bodies. And so now what Paul is going to do is he has three responses for their two slogans. So the first slogan, all things are permissible. Or in other words, what they're saying is, I have the right to do anything. Now, we see right here that Paul doesn't comment on the actual slogan itself. So Paul doesn't say, hey, that's wrong. You can't do anything. Because in reality, for those of us who are in Christ, we are free. There, there's a lot of freedoms that we get to enjoy. However, Paul's response to the slogan is, but not all things are helpful. Or in other words, not all things are beneficial. There are matters in this world that are allowable, but they are not helpful. Of course, you can stay up as late as you want every single night, but does that help you to be productive the very next day? Of course, you can eat an entire box of Krispy Kreme donuts, but does that benefit the health of your body? And of course, you could stare directly into the sun, but does that help your future eyesight? Here, what Paul is saying is, yes, guys, I I understand, you're right, you do have freedoms in Christ, but clearly there are some things that are not beneficial, and you need to use wisdom. He repeats that slogan again, all things are lawful for me, but this time, Paul's, Paul's response is, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, I will not be mastered or controlled by anything. Paul is highlighting that there is a clear danger of being mastered even by things that are permissible, even by things that are allowable. The reality is that you and I can be enslaved or mastered by things that aren't wrong or sinful. Uh, In a lighthearted way, we experience this with Netflix, right? You go in with the intent of, I'm going to watch three episodes And eight hours later, you've watched five seasons. And in that way, Netflix is not inherently bad. It's not wrong or sinful. But as humans, there's times where good things can enslave us or overpower us. Or a common example, the video game, which is fun and enjoyable, But when it prevents you from doing chores or when it keeps you from building relationships, when it distracts you from the things that need to be done, you are being enslaved or mastered by it. But more seriously, there are times that we are enslaved by drinks. I got to drink it. By foods, I got to eat it. By shopping, I got to buy it. And in those moments when we don't get to have what we want, we lash out in sin, and that is evidence that it's fruit of being mastered or enslaved by that thing. And so Paul is establishing once again, yes, guys, you're right. Yes, you have the freedom to do, freedom in Christ, to do whatever you want, but there is a danger of being enslaved or mastered or controlled by that thing. And finally, Paul addresses the second slogan. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So once again, on the surface, I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, I eat food so that it will go into my stomach, and my stomach is designed in such a way that when I eat food, it will process it, break it down, allow my body to assimilate the nutrients that it needs, and all of those things. But again, we're looking at this through the lens of these guys are trying to go out and commit sexual immorality. So the proper way to view what they're saying right here is the body has an appetite or drive to please itself sexually. And because the body is designed to engage in it, we should be able to do whatever we want. So, just as food has been given for the stomach and the stomach has been given to take care of food, I mean, our bodies are designed to engage in sexual relations and we have a drive to do it. So, it seems to me we should be able to do whatever we want. But Paul responds to this slogan to the Corinthians by saying, God will destroy both one and the other, meaning, that both food and the stomach will go away one day. Now, please note, please put an asterisk, Paul is not establishing the theology that we're all going to go to heaven stomachless. That's not what he's trying to explain right here. But what Paul is trying to point the Corinthians to is that in the end, and even now, God reigns over our bodies. Yes, you're right, you need food to eat and you have a stomach to process food. But do you know who has the final say-so in the end? The one who will put it into the appetite for food and put it into your stomach being hungry and needing food, and it's God. Which helps us to transition to the last part of 13, where he says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So already, we're getting the main point that Paul is trying to drive home to the Corinthians and the main point that we need to digest and process ourselves, that even though we have ownership of these bodies technically right now, this is my body and I'm controlling it, in actuality, I'm not completely in control of what my body does and where it goes and how I use it. Now we need to answer the question, uh, what is included in the defini- definition of sexual immorality? And so a very simple definition, uh, sexual immorality is any act of sex outside of the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. So sexual immorality is any act of sex that takes place outside of the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. Now, I need to make this note. Just because you really love them does not make you married. Just because you've been dating for a long time does not make you married. Just because you've been living together for many years does not make you married. Just because you are engaged in getting married tomorrow does not make you married. So then the reality is that in all of those scenarios that was just presented, none of them give permission for us to have sex. But there is only one context in which God has ordained for this to take place, and that is in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Now, Jesus clarifies some things about what also is included in sexual morality, and he explains that it's not limited to physical acts alone, but actually goes deeper to the state of the heart. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying that it is not enough that we guard against physical uh, physical attacks on our purity alone, but we must also guard our hearts and our minds. Lustful intent is the intentional look, the intentional thought, the intentional seeking after, the intentional dwelling on someone for the sake of your own gratif- gratification, is thinking and looking and pondering and dwelling on someone else so that you will gratify your own flesh. Now, in the context of this letter to the Corinthians, Paul is specifically addressing, so, in this context, the, the fact is that men are having sexual relations with prostitutes. It's actually a physical thing that's taking place, and so that is why Paul is being very pointed and specific in what he is saying right here. Because once again, in this culture, this is absolutely normal. So normal that for some of the temples to false gods, prostitutes were a part of that. And so even though Christ had called them out of the world, they continued to struggle with looking like the world. But even though the culture was emphasizing the supremacy of sexual desires over all things, Paul said, no, no, don't believe the lies. Your bodies don't determine what you do with it. God does. Your appetites don't govern what you do and don't do with your bodies. God does. Your hunger or your drives don't give purpose to your bodies. God does. Well, then, why? Like, why is this true? And Paul makes this very clear at the end of verse 13. He says, because your body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This means that your body is intended to be used for the sake of the Lord, Christian, So for those of us who have been saved, for those of us who have been made new, our bodies are intended to bring honor and glory to the Lord, is to be used in accordance to his commands, is to be used to honor him and to make him known. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one that determines how the Christian body is to be used and not anything else. But also we see in this text that the Lord is for the body. And this means that Jesus inhabits and gives life and purpose to our bodies. And so the body is for Christ and that it belongs to him and his purpose to serve him. And Christ indwells and gives gives life to our bodies. As we said before, and we live in a world where the opposite of this message is constantly being proclaimed. It's it's easy to get wrapped up in the false reality of the world, and so we must teach ourselves, our young men, and our young women to say, no, no, this is not the reality that we exist in because we have been saved, we have been redeemed, we have been renewed in Christ Jesus. And our bodies have been given a purpose by God Himself. So, why should I use my body to be, uh, why should the use of my body be governed by God's standards? Well, it's because your body is for the Lord. Second reason your body is united with Christ. Your body is united with Christ, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 14 through 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So in verses 14 through 17, Paul is saying that the second reason why the Lord sets the standards is because our body is united with the Lord. So already we have seen many, many times as we've been going through our series in Romans chapters 6 through 18, that as believers, we are united with Christ. Our identity is rooted in him. Now, in these verses, what Paul is doing is giving us a deeper understanding of that union. This union is not just a spiritual union, but there is a physical union as well. Our our bodies matter. What we do with our bodies, they matter. They are significant. So what we do with them tells something about what we believe about Christ and our union with him. So in verse 14, Paul establishes the value and the significance of the Christian body by giving reference to the resurrection. God the Father raised the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how did he raise him? He raised him bodily. There was a physical form to Jesus Christ after the resurrection. Jesus was able to touch and move and do things. His body was raised. Now, if you were to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul goes into way more detail about the significance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but he doesn't do that here right now because Paul's point is that God raised the Lord Jesus Christ bodily, and not only that, but he will also raise us up bodily in the end. So if that is true, that means if God is going to raise up our physical bodies, that implies that the body matters to him. It's not just a shell that's taking care of our soul until Jesus returns, and then we break out of the shell and then go up to heaven, floating around like spirits. But the reality is that God will raise up our bodies. It will be a new and perfect body but it will be a body nonetheless. And so the body matters. Now Paul is going to continue to move further in chapter, in verse 15, to start to draw from the imagery of marriage to again point to the significance of the body and how the body is united with Christ. He says this in verse 15. Do you not know? This is quickly a rhetorical question. They do know. And so in other words, he's saying, guys, you should know this. I'm about to say something that is very dull. This is like basics, of, basic about our faith. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Our union with Christ has joined us with him in such a way that you are no longer seen as individual bodies operating on your own, but collectively together we are the body of Christ. Like each of us are members of Christ. Now, this isn't like the Power Rangers where they combine their individual zords and make a megazord. Uh, this isn't like Captain Planet where we, like, get our rings and, like, our ring powers together form Christ Jesus and his body. We are members of the body in Christ in that we represent Christ in how we steward our bodies. And what we do with our bodies, it represents who Christ is. And so if we steward them well, what we're doing is we're displaying and proclaiming to the world the good truth of Jesus Christ. But when we don't steward our bodies well, we're proclaiming the opposite. And so this union is what Christ has done, and it's not just a spiritual union, but it's a physical union that has taken place, and so we are connected to Christ Jesus. And so what we do with our bodies has a direct callback. It points to Jesus Christ in some way because our union is not just physical, it's not just spiritual, it's physical. So if this is true, now let's get back to sexual immorality. Paul says then, he continues in verse 15, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And he has an exclamation never, which we would hopefully all agree to. Now, definition. Um, What is a prostitute? Uh, A prostitute is someone that has made their profession in leading men and women into sexual immorality. So a prostitute is someone that has made their job to lead men and women to commit sexual immorality. Now, contextually, in the context of 1 Corinthians— uh, it is the men going after female prostitutes. This profession represents the total and utter rebellion against God. Like this profession is saying, God, I don't care about how you ordered things in the world. I don't care about what you said is right and wrong. This is what I want to do. It undermines God's intention for sex in the context of marriage alone. So Paul is saying here, he is saying that giving into sexual immorality is likened to uniting Christ to a prostitute. We as believers, let me break this down a little bit more, we as believers are united to Christ. So we are here and we're united to Christ. What happens in that process is our identity and who we are are now defined by Christ who we have been united to. So we have been united to Christ, so what is true of Christ is true of us. And we are Christians, little Christ, and we're reflecting him. And so what Paul is saying is, when we commit sexual immorality, what we're doing is we are taking Christ and connecting him to a prostitute, which means all the things that are true of the identity of a prostitute is now being applied to Christ Jesus. The identity of a prostitute is now being applied to Christ Jesus, which is why he exclaims never. We would never do that. We would never say that's okay. We would say that's blasphemy. We would say that's against the order in which God has ordered the world. That is preposterous. And that is the reaction that Paul wants. He wants the Corinthians, and he wants us to not think that sexual immorality is something that we secretly engage in behind closed doors, and it has no negative impact on anyone else. It does on the Lord himself. And it's so easy when we think about sexual immorality to only think about the physical people that's involved and the physical people that gets hurt as a result of it. But above the, the husband or the wife or the kids or the family or the girlfriend or the boyfriend that's impacted by the sin of sexual immorality, the chief person that's affected is Christ Jesus himself, who died on the cross so that you might walk in newness of life. And that is the point that Paul is trying to get across. He says, man, you should be thinking about this idea and think, this is, this is ridiculous. This is unheard of. I would never suggest anything like this. But what about for us today? Uh, I don't think that in our situations that we have a bad theology of the Bible like the Corinthians. I think our issue is that we forget the value and worth of whom we are uh, connected to. So wives, who among you on your wedding day before you get married will put on your beautiful wedding dress and go to a house painting party? You know, like your friends like, hey, can you help me paint my room? And you just put on your wedding dress and go like start painting some rooms. That's pretty ridiculous, right? Like you are trying to keep your dress nice and beautiful and pure and white for the few hours later when you get married, you would not put your wedding dress in that circumstance. Or who among you would buy a fresh pair of J's? I mean, you just went to the mall, you just drop $300 on a fresh pair of J's, and then you go to a muddy field and start running. Like, I think there's some men in here who are cringing right now at the thought of, like, their J's getting mud all over them. That's preposterous. You don't do that with a wedding dress, and you don't do that with a fresh pair of J's. And in the same way, we don't put our bodies in situations that will defile them. That would be a direct attack on the purity of the body which Christ Jesus has redeemed. And so I believe that it's so easy for us to give into the temptation of sexual immorality, because in those moments, we have forgotten the worth and the value of him whom we are members of. We disassociate ourselves from him mentally so that we can gratify the desires of the flesh, but in doing so, you are defiling the union that was sealed with the blood shed on the cross. And on paper, no Christian would ever suggest a union between Christ Jesus and a prostitute. However, when we commit sexual immorality— We, through our actions, are saying that such a union of Christ is acceptable. And Paul takes us even deeper by incorporating the Old Testament. Look at verse 16. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So, both the word joined and the quote that Paul gives right here about the two becoming one flesh is a point back, a throwback to Genesis 2, 24, which we believe is the first marriage ceremony. This is the marriage of Adam and Eve. The Lord is communicating that marriage is not simply an institution or a relationship status change. When two get married, they are no longer two, but they becoming joined together as one flesh, one unit, closely identified to one another. What is his is hers, and what is hers is his. They share the same vision and direction. They are now joined together as one body. They are uh, coming together and moving forward for the glory of God as one. That is what marriage is and what it represents. And so committing sexual immorality is like the body of Christ and the body of a prostitute becoming one flesh as a married couple. And the thought of that should really disgust us. And that is what Paul is hoping for that these are the images that are coming to mind in the midst of being tempted to commit sexual immorality. Because again, our actions might seem like it's just between me and this person behind closed doors, but there's theological implications to everything that we do with our bodies every single day of our lives. And so the Corinthians, like many people today believe that intimate sexual relationships can be had without any commitment to back them up. But scripture says otherwise. That form of intimacy is intended to be had between a husband and a wife because it is designed to make them one. When that act is not accompanied by a covenant relationship of marriage, it leads to so much brokenness and hurt and pain and shame, and guilt. And many of us have been through that. And so if we were to adopt this theological, this grander vision of what sexual immorality is really about, it would hopefully give us pause. But Paul concludes in verse 17 by saying, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And from the inside out, the body, the mind and the soul, when we are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, we are united with Christ. And it's a beautiful union and it's one that we must guard well. And so why? uh, Why should how I use my body be governed by God's standards? Paul says, because your body is united with the Lord. Third reason. We're almost there. Third reason. Your body is a temple of the Lord. The third reason why the Lord tells us what to do with our bodies is because your body is a temple of the Lord. In the first part of verse 18, we see the main point and application that Paul is getting to. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Now, what does flee mean? One helpful image would be Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Uh, from Genesis chapter 39, verses 6 through 18. So you might be familiar with the story. In the story, Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of everything that he has. Joseph is the number one servant, and Potiphar's like, dude, I'm so proud of you. I'm going to let you steward and take care of all the things that I have. Potiphar's wife was uh, wanting to have a relationship with Joseph, and would tempt him over and over and over again, trying to entice him to have an inappropriate relationship with her. Until one day, where she literally grabs his garments, and Joseph, in that moment, thinks about this word fleeing. And he takes off so fast that the only thing that's left is the garment that she grabbed. That's fleeing. Fleeing is not asking the question, how far is too far? Fleeing is not putting yourself in a compromising situation and saying, we are strong enough to not give in. Fleeing is not making excuses or compromising on boundaries. Fleeing is literally running away so fast that you have no opportunity to give in. And if that means you leave your cell phone, go to Verizon and buy a new cell phone. If it means that you just leave your car and you just start running physically, tell your friend to go pick up your car. That is the mindset that we should have. We are so disgusted by sexual immorality that we're we're willing to run so fast that whatever we have is just left there like kind of like hanging in the wind because we move so fast, just fell to the ground. That's what it means to flee. We no longer linger and wait to see, man. When will it get dangerous? Let me just hanging out here. We we run away. So why, why? Paul makes it clear uh, as he continues in verse eighteen. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, he's not saying that the sins that we commit outside our body, which would include like uh, drunkenness, that would be a part of this. Um, it would include like uh, greed, maybe gluttony, like those things. He's saying that those things happen outside the body. But there's something that is special, you can say, about sexual immorality that it damages something on the inside. Uh, In one form, it is the brokenness of tying yourself to someone and then ripping yourself away from them. And as we've already seen in verses 16 and 17, uh, the act of sex is the sealing of a covenant relationship of marriage, and so there's a oneness, and when you do that with multiple people, you're constantly ripping yourself apart and putting yourself together with someone else, constantly being tattered over and over again. But verse 19 sheds even more light about the dangers of sexual immorality, of how it damages our own body. He says in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Let's stop right there. So Paul right here is pointing back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the temple was established to be the dwelling place of God. It was a place of worship, a place to honor the Lord. It was also intended to be a means by which those who did not know God can come and learn about him. And so in the same way, because of what Christ Jesus has done, because of our profession of faith, the Holy Spirit has been placed in us. And so now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So when he is talking about sinning against yourself, those priests and those Levites who were in charge of taking care of the temple, making sure that things were kept in order, making sure that things were clean and honored the Lord, it would be unfathomable for them to start writing on the walls or knocking stuff over or or defiling, messing up the temple. People would be like, what are you doing? The Lord is here. This is where we come to worship. Don't do that. And so Paul is saying, you are the temple and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. So when you have, when you have a half-hearted view of what sex is and you commit sexual immorality, it's the same as going into the temple of the Lord and writing all over the walls, messing everything up. And it's easy to not think about that. Like the Holy Spirit kind of seems like a mystical thing, a spirit, and we just don't think about it. But the Holy Spirit is a he who dwells in us, and he convicts us, and he encourages us, and he comforts us. And as the temple of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us and is a gracious gift of God, that means that we want to take care of our temples and keep them pure. And growing up, this verse was used to tell people not to get tattoos, and that's not the purpose of this verse. Paul is saying, do not commit sexual immorality, because that is an atrocity to the Holy Spirit that says that sex can only happen in the context of marriage. And so what you're doing is you're dragging the Holy Spirit along as you dishonor the Lord over and over again. You're saying, hey, Holy Spirit, come with me. While I tell God I don't care about his commands, while I tell God I don't care about his laws and his rules, Holy Spirit, come with me as I go and defile this temple. So we don't determine what we do with our bodies, because our bodies belong to God, and God dwells in our bodies. And just as the temple of old was intentionally kept from being defiled, so must we be vigilant with our own bodies. Because we are also the temple. And so finally, fourth and final reason. Why should uh, how I use my body be governed by God's standard? The final reason is simply this. Your body has been purchased by the Lord. Your body has been purchased by the Lord. Let's look back at verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Uh, Our kids love to think that the things that we purchase them belongs to them. And it's like really cute and funny, right? Like you threaten to put their toy in toy time out and their response might be, hey, that's mine. No, you can't do that. You're like, sweetie, I bought this. This actually belongs to me, and I've, like, put you a steward over it, but this belongs to me. No, no, it's not yours. Or they're misusing something that you purchased for them, and their attitude is, I can misuse this, I can throw this toy around, I can slam it against the wall because it's mine, and I can do whatever I want with it no that 's not true. Uh, I purchased this toy for you. like this item was been given to you, and the way that you use the item has already been spelled out in the instructions like in the uh, in the book and so the final point that Paul is making to them and to us is that we likewise have been purchased our our bodies have been purchased, and we like to think that it 's ours, and we get to do whatever we want but Christ Jesus has purchased our bodies by his own blood, and so this body does not belong to me to do whatever I want, but it has been given to me to steward for his name and his renown. And so when Paul says right here, you are not your own, he is saying you are not independent or autonomous from the Lord our God. You don't get to do whatever you want and function with your body however you want. Why? Because you, have, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul puts it this way. He says in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the sake of him who died and was raised. Christian, our bodies and our lives do not belong to us. It belongs to the one who paid a great price for it. And the price that Christ Jesus paid was his life and his blood that was shed on a cross. And so each and every day that we find ourselves tempted, man, may we remind ourselves that I am not my own. No, it's not my decision to say yes. I need to go consult the one who purchased my body and ask, is this appropriate for me to do? And as I pray and as I read the scriptures, when the one who purchased my body says that this is a no, then as a good steward, this is a no to me. And I will set up as many guards. I will talk to as many people. I will put as many things in place as possible to not misuse the body that was purchased by a great price. So what now? In light of everything that we've discussed, what is next for all of us? And here are just a few helpful applications. The first one, cry out for help. If you are a Christian here today and you are Currently struggling with sexual immorality, say something to someone. If this is the current place that you're in, is this if this is the current struggle that you're having, say something to someone. Don't believe the law that you can stop whenever you want. Don't believe the law that this won't happen again. Don't believe the law that you've learned your lesson. Christian, do you not know that you have been called to live in a relationship with one another? And a part of living in a relationship with other believers is bearing each other's burdens. So when you don't do this, you are being prideful and you are dishonoring the Lord and you're saying that He is not worthy. When you sit in silence and struggle alone, you're being prideful and arrogant. And saying that Jesus and your purity is not important enough to get over yourself. Number two, take responsibility for your siblings. Take responsibility for your siblings. If you know that someone around you is struggling, if you've seen things on their social media or heard them say something that's suspicious, don't sit in silence. Christian, do you not know that we have been commanded to hold each other accountable? When Jesus says to take the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in someone else's, he still wants us to inspect for specks. He doesn't say take the log out of your own eye and leave other people alone. He says check yourself first and then be a responsible sibling and help someone else walk well. Don't neglect your responsibility because you're afraid or you don't want to confront or you're nervous about their response. This is our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have a friend that is single in a dating relationship or married, ask good questions to check in on them. Stop assuming that everybody is good and in a good place because I can tell you they're not. because of scripture, because we're all sinful. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So that means all of us are struggling and dealing with something. Don't sit in silence because what you're doing is you're risking the purity of the person that's near you because you're too afraid to say something. Number three, do not be burdened by guilt because of your past. And if you have been sexually immoral in your past, and you have confessed your sin and repented of that sin. And you're now walking in newness of life. Do not be burdened by that guilt over and over again. Christian, do you not know that you are set free from guilt and the, sh- the guilt and shame of your past because of what Christ Jesus has done on the cross? So don't play those mistakes over and over again. Just as Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, go. And sin no more. Four, praying. All of us need to be going to the Father and asking him to help guard our heart and our mind as we live in a world that's constantly tempting us to walk contrary to the commands of God. And if you're sitting here and you think that will never be me, you're prideful and you're foolish and you need to pray and ask the Lord to guard your heart and your mind every single day. Every single day, that should be our prayer, but not only that, not just for ourselves, but we should be praying for one another, asking God to protect and guard the hearts and our minds of our neighbors and our friends and our kids, our kids and our co workers. We should be praying in such a way, Christian. Do you not know that the Father loves you and you are His child, and He is faithful to help you escape from any form of temptation you may be facing? So, pray. And finally, number five, if you are a person here today that does not know Christ, you might be sitting here like, this is some crazy stuff. Like, (laughs) what are they talking about? Why in the world would you not use your body and do whatever you want? Point five is this, Christ Jesus is worthy. We've said this over and over again, but there was a time in which all of us who are believers were far from God doing whatever we wanted to, going wherever we wanted, saying and thinking whatever we wanted. We thought that we were living the good life, but we were miserable. We were separated from the Father without purpose and without hope. And by the grace of God, he opened our eyes that we might behold the beauty of Jesus Christ and the reality that he sent his son to live a perfect life, to proclaim hope and deliverance in him, and died on a cross and rose again, and is now seated on the right-hand side of the Father that those who confess and repent of their sin might have newness of life. A Christ like that is worthy— And we will live on this earth for maybe 80, 90, 100 years. But that is nothing compared to the eternity that's to come. And so for 80, 90, 100 years, we will commit to being sexually pure. To not committing sexual immorality. Because the glory of God is worth more than the temporary pleasures of this short life on this earth. And so church... You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Father, we are tempted, whether we want to admit it or not, all the time by the things of this world. And the only way that we can say no to sin and yes to you and your commands is with your help. The strength to follow your commands can never come from us, but only comes from you. So, will you give us that strength to walk in this newness of life? Will you help us as a church here at Crawford Avenue to love each other so well that we're in each other's business and able to encourage one another to walk faithfully? Will you help us to get over pride and arrogance that keeps us silent and help us to be open and honest? Will you help us to get over our pride and our fear and engage one another intentionally in asking good questions? Will you help us to be a church that cares about purity, the purity of your bride, and help us to do whatever it takes that we might walk in a way that brings you honor and glory? Thank you for your help as we went through this text. We just pray that you will help us to continuously walk in a way that makes you known. It's in Jesus' name we pray.